Welcome to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. Business cooperatives run off of community involvement and investment, whether it's a small group of individuals raising chickens to sell eggs or a sovereign tribe operating its own utility company. Cooperatives or co-ops can be structured a variety of ways. Tribes are often in a unique position to help them along, but don't always offer the right incentives. We're talking about the co-op business model right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. In what's described as a historic partnership, the Coquel Tribe and the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife have agreed to jointly manage a five-county area. KLCC's Brian Bull reports. The deal follows a push last year by local governments and groups near the Coquille River to help address drastically reduced numbers of salmon. The campaign urged Governor Kate Brown to back the proposal. John Ogan is a legal representative for the Coquille. He says that effort has paid off in this new partnership. The governor has sought to implement policies that correct historic injustices to the Oregon tribes as much as possible, or at least in part. You know, there's a sad history with colonialization, settlement and displacement and disassociation from their cultural values and resources like fish and wildlife, the environment, rivers, and such. The counties are Coos, Curry, Douglas, Jackson, and Lane, with the possibility other tribes may seek similar agreements with the state of Oregon. For National Native News, I'm Brian Bull. Native leaders have spent much time this week at the annual gathering of the Assembly of First Nations in Vancouver debating the suspension of their national chief. In June, the organization suspended Roseanne Archibald after staff complaints against her. Archibald made history last year, becoming the first woman to lead the powerful Native organization in Canada. She calls the suspension illegal, saying the executive committee does not have the capacity to suspend. During a speech streamed live by APTN National News, Archibald told leaders it's not a human resources issue, but an attempt to silence her because she's trying to clean up corruption within the organization. The reason we're here today and the reason I'm giving this speech is because I refused to give $1 million plus to staff in a staff payout. I refused. I knew it was wrong. This funding that I am entrusted with is meant to help you, all of your communities, all of your citizens. I can't hand a million dollars to four people. Members of the executive committee maintain the suspension is due to staff complaints and say there's an active investigation. They asked leaders to allow the suspension to continue until the investigation is over, but that motion failed. Instead, leaders are debating a resolution for full reinstatement. During debate Wednesday afternoon, some leaders expressed disgust with the situation, saying it's taking away time, resources, and action from the many important issues facing their communities. Clean drinking water, child welfare, and the Pope's upcoming visit to Canada are among priorities. Leaders are continuing debate on the suspension Thursday, the final day of the gathering. 
The University of Arizona recently announced it will provide tuition-free education for Native American undergraduates. As Arizona Public Radio's Ryan Heinches reports, it's part of the university's plan to increase Native student access to higher education. The program begins in the fall and will cover tuition and mandatory fees for enrolled members of Arizona's 22 federally recognized tribes at the university's main Tucson campus. It applies to new and continuing full-time degree-seeking undergrads in what university officials say is a first-of-its-kind program. University President Robert Robbins says serving indigenous students is a crucial part of U of A's mission, and it'll help hundreds of people access and complete college educations. More than 400 students enrolled at the University of Arizona last year meet the criteria for the tuition waiver. Officials say in the future the program may expand to graduate students, along with those taking classes online and at other U of A campuses across the state. For National Native News, I'm Ryan Heinches in Flagstaff. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. With so many organizations trying to help military veterans, it can be hard to find the right information. So AARP brings together no-charge employment and fraud prevention resources, caregiving tools, discounts, and more at aarp.org slash veterans who support this show. The Institute of American Indian Arts presents the Virtual Holiday Marketplace now through the new year. A variety of items from the IAIA community are now available for purchase at iaia.edu slash marketplace who support this show. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. For those who have the desire to operate their own business but are worried about the risks that come with any venture, co-ops or cooperatives offer a potential model. From reservation energy utilities like Nimipu Energy in Idaho to farms like San Javier Co-op in southern Arizona, co-ops bring financial and social benefits for Native co-op members and customers in the community. There are a couple of ways a co-op can be structured, and we'll get to those details in the show, but the name of the game is equality, self-responsibility, openness, and democracy. But just like any business, licensing, local laws, and policies govern and guide how co-ops start and operate. And some tribes don't acknowledge co-ops in their tribal codes. In this hour, we'll learn about the co-op business model and what kind of work is being done to make sure Native entrepreneurs have the option. Join us by calling 1-800-996-2848. Are you a member of your local co-op? Does your tribe's economic development plan include community cooperatives? That's 1-800-99-NATIVE. Let's learn more about Native co-ops, and we've got just the people who can help us do that on our show today. Pamela Standing is the co-executive director of programs and partnership for the Minnesota Indigenous Business Alliance. She's up in St. Paul, and she's a citizen of the Cherokee Nation. Pamela, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Well, Pamela, tell us more about these co-ops and how they can be an effective business model in Native communities. Well, we started researching them as another form of economic development for our tribal planners to really be looking at as another form of uh, creating a diverse economy in our, you know, within our tribal jurisdiction. And we started interviewing, we started with a list of about 150 cooperatives and ended up 
actually being able to interview about 50 of these cooperatives in the U.S. and Canada. And it was really an exciting project to get these case studies in writing for other people to see and be inspired by what they've done. So we believe it's another tool that we can put in our tool belt for economic development in our communities. Okay. And it's really and aligned with our values. Okay, and let's talk about the structure here. Who exactly owns a co-op? The members own the co-op. So the people that um, that start the co-op and become members of the co-op, they are the people that make the decision. So it's one vote per person. And how many members can a co-op have? It can have an unlimited amount. They can have as many or as few as they want in their community. Oftentimes, I think we think of co-ops in in the nonprofit sector. Are co-ops always nonprofit businesses or can they be for-profit models as well? They're really a for-profit model. They're really not a nonprofit model. Um, Canada has nonprofit co-ops. It's kind of new happening in the U.S., but uh, these models are a for-profit model. And what types of products or services are best suited to the co-op model? Boy, anything where a community is looking to solve a problem and they, you know, they see an issue, it, it can be anything. It can be anything from art. It can be food. It can be value-added products, agricultural products. Um, it can be insurance. It can be health care. Um, it can be elder services. It's, it's unlimited with what you can do. Well, tell us about some successful Native business co- business co-ops there in Minnesota and other parts of Native America. Well, we've been working here. Minnesota is probably one of the capitals for cooperatives in the nation. Um, most of the co-ops that you see here are predominantly white-dominated cooperatives. We're working to bring the Native uh, native cooperatives to our communities. But when we did the research, we found so many across the country. There's Koala Arts and Crafts um, in North Carolina. Uh, they're the oldest native co-op in the country. I believe they're 75 years old. Um, there are up-and-coming cooperatives that are just emerging right now in communities around issues of food sovereignty and value-added products. Um, their arts is another one there in New Mexico. Uh, you mentioned a couple when you started out, uh, talking about, you know, these co-ops around the country and what they're doing to really solve problems, answer, come up with solutions to problems in their communities and how they can organize around those issues. So it's, it's really exciting. There's a, a co-op in Oneida Nation. Um, it's called Among the Corn, uh, the Corn Stalks. And they grow uh, traditional white corn all over Oneida Nation, and they've actually influenced policy change with the, with the tribal government. So now, fee land that is uh, that's open to uh, where typically it's been rented to white farmers within their you know within their tribal jurisdiction, they're now setting that land aside and they're giving it first priority to people that are going to grow the white corn. So there's some really exciting things happening. 
It sounds like it. And, and you you just talked about the Koala Arts and, and Crafts Co-op there in Cherokee, North Carolina. It's interesting because I was just there over the weekend and made a purchase. So it's really exciting to learn about all these different ways that co-ops are, are operating all through Native America. And I'm wondering, Pamela, is there a cultural connection between Native people and community co-ops, do you think? I believe so, because I believe we were the first co-opters, because our economies economy that's how we worked and prior to colonization you know we had these equitable economic systems and practices in place and they were based on cooperation sharing hospitality and responsibility for the common welfare of all so those were practices we already had in place long before uh, non-native people started developing this co-op model. We were already doing that in our communities and in our trade and exchange. Mm. Well, what about the the laws and regulations that um, that govern co-ops? I mean, they're in Minnesota. Are there a, a lot of policies and, and codes in place that that make it easy to set up and, and run a co-op? They they are, but they they are complex. Uh, when you set up a cooperative, it's different than setting up like a, a regular business. But in some states like New York, for instance, they don't have cooperative law. So all their cooperatives have to set up as an LLC. So that's the designation that they incorporate under. And so there's every state has different rules and regulations. And to my knowledge, there's only one nation that has cooperative law on their books, and that's Navajo Nation. I don't believe okay. that we're working on it to, to develop some cooperative law. And there's been some model law developed and there's groups that are working right now, native attorneys that are working to create model law for tribes to adopt for cooperative. Okay. That's, that's really interesting. And, you know, I'm thinking of a, a co-op and, and one of the things that seems really challenging is, is just dealing with these different members. You said there can be, an unlimited number of members in a co-op and everyone has a say right in how the business is run and i'm just thinking of our show here native america calling and we've got a small crew about half a dozen people but even then we all get along but sometimes it's tough for us all to get on the same page so a community cooperative with maybe 50 or 200 members how do you how do they balance so many perspectives at, at one time i think it's the time that they spend up front in governance and learning how to govern but also Picking the right type of way that they um, navigate disagreements or agreements within their community. So a lot of uh, co-ops use a consensus model. And so it's really driven by those values of that community, how they want to resolve these issues. But it's also kind of like I was sharing with Andy the other day that, you know how you have that one relative that maybe comes over for dinner occasionally and they kind of get on everyone's last nerve? Well, it's kind of like that in a cooperative. It's like being part of a family and we just have to learn how to get along with one another and find ways that if we don't, if we don't agree, can we look at our disagreement and will it impede what's going to be happening for future generations? It's like you set a bar for your decision making. And that helps people, you know, they can, they can just agree not to vote, or they can vote. And but it's allowing everyone to have a voice. Okay. And it's bylaws well, that also govern how you're going to resolve these issues too. It's what you do up front, your upfront work. 
Bylaws, okay. And I can certainly relate to that, that relative that kind of gets on everybody's nerves at times. And uh, Minnesota Indian Business Alliance, you published a guidebook to help tribes develop yes. community cooperatives. What's been the feedback for that resource? Um, well, actually, it's been really positive because we've been contacted by a lot of non-native uh, uh, cooperative organizations that are looking at making an entrance into our native communities or have tried and have not had much success. So we've been working with them, but we're also a part of a project right now with NCBA CLUSA, which is the national, International and National um, Association of Cooperatives and the Native American Agricultural Fund. So we're in the process right now of developing phase one of a native cooperative developers uh, training. And we're going to be recruiting 13 people that will go through phase one of the training. And we want to start training native people from our communities to be working really closely on the ground with their community members. Oh, well, that sounds really, really fascinating. And we're talking right now with Pamela Standing. She's up in St. Paul, Minnesota. She's with the Minnesota Indian Business Alliance. And we're learning all about cooperatives, co-ops. And I, I think sometimes when we think of co-ops, I know I immediately think of the 1960s. And, and yesterday, anybody that was listening to our show knows that we did a show about the 60s as a decade. And um, I think sometimes we think of, of people from that generation, the free-spirited folks inspired by a less capitalistic, profit-minded approach to business. But I'm thinking that's probably a stereotype. And when we come back from break, we're going to talk more with Pamela a little bit about what the, the culture of cooperatives are. In, in Native America and the rest of the country and, and learn a little bit more about how they've evolved over the years. If you got a question or a comment, 1-800-996-2848. Back right after break. People are getting out in public and museums are opening their doors this summer with all new exhibits with fresh native perspectives. We'll preview exhibits on black indigenous art, a controversial historical indigenous Mexican woman, and more. We've got your guide for summer at the Native Museum on the next Native America Calling. If you're hurting in your relationship or have been affected by sexual violence, Strong Heart's Native Helpline is a no-charge, 24-7, confidential and anonymous domestic, dating, and sexual violence helpline for Native Americans. Help is available by calling 1-844-7-NATIVE or by clicking on the chat icon on strongheartshelpline.org. This program is supported by Strong Hearts Native Helpline. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about the co-op business model today. Are you a member of a co-op? Do you know if your tribe has any business codes or policies for Native co-ops? Give us a call at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. We're speaking now with Pamela Standing of the Minnesota Indian Business Alliance. And uh, Pamela, I've got to tell you a, a story and it's interesting because it actually occurred up in the Twin Cities. 
when, when I was a little kid, my parents had friends up in Minneapolis and we used to go visit them quite a bit. And I remember one time we went to eat in a restaurant and it was actually set up as a co-op. And we're talking like early 1970s here. So it had very much of kind of that old school hippie vibe. It was all vegetarian. It was the first time in my life I ever ate a veggie burger. I remember that it wasn't quite what I was expecting, but what I remember most was when it came time to pay, nobody came by to give us a check. Instead, they had a box on a table with a list of suggested prices for each item, and they left it up to customers to just drop how much money they felt that was fair. And I remember my parents telling me, like, hey, let's, you know, <laughs> you have to pay. And I was like, wait, can't we just go? Like, what's the big deal? And they were, no, no, it doesn't work like that. But I think the meaning of a co-op was lost in that. I mean, I was like six years old at the time. But now as an adult, I can really appreciate what a co-op represents and, and what they seek to accomplish. And I'm interested in learning more about the culture of co-ops and what kind of people are drawn to co-ops and what are they hope to, to, to get out of being in a co-op? Oh, boy, that's a big question. Um, it, it, I think you're, you're kind of straddling a couple different worlds because one, it's your native community that's shopping, but it's also maybe people that are on the border towns of your community that find a benefit in supporting that cooperative and shopping there as well and supporting the work of the community members, whatever it is that they're doing. So I think it's a, you know, it's, it's both ways uh, that people, um, you know, find satisfaction of being a part of the cooperative. It's also a way that you stand up and you support your community by being a member. It's saying that you believe in what they're doing. You want to support this. You want to see it grow. And one of the things that I think in our Native communities that's very different with co-ops is the way that they practice the giveaway. And that's something that you don't see. You know, they, they call it patronage or dividends in, you know, in cooperative language. But in our communities, we still practice that giveaway. And that's such an important part of who we are as Native people. So that's something that I see that's a little bit different where Native people will spend more time um, really giving back to the community and finding ways that they can support all the communities, but also to help professionally develop community members and provide jobs for them at these co-ops as well. So I see a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of our culture is really kind of it's kind of woven in and out of that cooperative model. And even the way that the cooperative structured, some co-ops, it's all volunteers. Others, they have paid staff on board that take care of everything. Um, but it's also the impact that they make in their community. And um, I know like at Koala Arts and Crafts, they do a lot of environmental work and they've really influenced environmental policy on lands that border their reservation. And they've made a way for native members to be able to gather bulrush and river cane and those types of items that they use. They've also replanted trees that are really important in their basket making. They grow the natural dyes right at the, um, you know, right at their facility. Uh, they have people that uh, repair baskets. They also value baskets. They also have a really amazing art program in their schools. And that was mm -hmm. all because of that That's the kind of impact and influence that a cooperative has. And a lot of times it's very quiet the way they do it, but they're getting it done. 
Now, what about for customers or consumers that might cross paths with a co-op? And let's say you go to a to an art co-op or you go to a, a cooperative grocery store, or even a restaurant like I described earlier with their little makeshift uh, suggested prices. Um, can customers generally expect higher or lower costs by doing business with a co-op? I think it goes both ways. But the one of the things about the co-op ensuring that their members are being paid a fair price for their products. And a lot of time what happens in our communities, especially with the arts, we're expected to do the Indian deal all the time. And we're expected to give them, you know, like the cheapest price. And I, what I see with these co-ops is that they're valuing the products at what they're worth and they're creating a market. They're, they're raising the market on um, on the sale of Native American art to other consumers. And I think that's really important that we start really valuing the work that we produce and, and the importance of what we're doing in our communities to perpetuate our culture and, you know, valuing that. So I don't think it's about getting the cheapest item. Um, it's about getting good quality and, and, appreciating that you're buying good quality when you go there and you get to meet the people directly that are creating the items that you're purchasing. So there's a relationship that's established as well. Right. And I think we can all relate to that. All my relations discount that you're talking about is so often occurs in, yeah. in some of our communities. Let's uh, talk to somebody else that has some experience in dealing with co-ops, community of co community cooperatives. Uh, joining us now from Canyonville, Oregon is Brian Boswell. He's the general manager of the Umpqua Indian Utility Cooperative. Brian, great to have you on the show. Thank you. Hey, Sean. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I understand that um, the utility there uh, in Oregon, it's not set up as a true co-op. It has some tribal uh, ownership in it. But but tell us more exactly how it's how it's set up and how it differs from maybe some of the co-ops that we've been talking about with Pamela. Yeah, for sure. Um, so we definitely are not set up as a traditional cooperative. Um, so Umpqua Indian Utility Cooperative um, stands for um, UIUC for short, but um, we were we're owned and operated by the Cow Creek Tribe, um, and so we're we we are able to buy wholesale power from Bonneville Power, and we distribute that that power on tribal land. And so all of our customers are tribally owned customers, meaning that the tribe owns the land that we serve. So um, so in a sense, that a true cooperative, it's it's member owned. Um, we're owned by the tribe, but um, we we serve tribal customers only. So does that mean you only have one shareholder, and and that's the tribe itself, as opposed to individuals, families, residents, customers? Correct. Yes. So yeah, okay. um, a hundred percent of of what we do is is generated by the tribe. Yes. And what's the advantage to to having that cooperative arrangement with the tribe for the utilities? So, and that's a great question. So, originally, uh, UIUC was formed um, for the tribe on the electrical side. It was formed to kind of create a greater degree of self-sufficiency and cost savings for the tribe in terms of utilities. Um, back when UIUC was formed, we were having problems with expansion, uh, butting up against, you know, going to the utilities. 
and kind of the utilities kind of dictating how the how the tribe could could expand. And so the utility was formed originally with the electrical in mind, but um, we were formed under uh, the Cow Creek Tribe's um, legal code, and so it gives us um, managing capabilities of natural gas, electric, water, and sewer services for the tribe. So pretty much everything then, gas, electric, water, all handled through the co-op. And what's the, the feedback from, from customers, from tribal members there? Do they like that arrangement as opposed to dealing with an outside utility company? Yeah, I, I think another huge benefit is we can control the cost of the utility rates. And um, since we were we were formed in 2001, but we, we kind of really got going as a true utility in 2007, and we've been able to save the tribe um, over $25 million in utility rates compared to our rates versus what um, the existing utility was at the time. So, I mean, there's a huge cost benefit to that. And all of the customers, they are from the co- the Cow Creek tribe. There are no non-tribal people in the in the co-op. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. So and initially, when we were formed in two thousand one, it was one hundred percent commercial based, and and then since since that time, we've been able to expand into tribal housing. So we serve tribal members in, in the tribal and tribal housing. Now, rural electric cooperatives, they've been around a long time. There's there's one up in northern New Mexico, the Hamas Co-op. In fact, I remember years ago, my aunt and uncle, they used to have the phone line to that. And anybody that called after business hours, they would actually call their, their house and they would field all those calls for Hamas Electric Co-op. But uh, your operation there at, in Oregon, it sounds kind of similar to those, um, those older co-op electric uh, co-ops that we've had it all over the U.S., is it? Um, I would say to, to a degree, that's, that's true. But, um, you know, we, uh, we, 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 we're constantly expanding, um, trying to develop our cooperative, um, you know, to, to serve a, a greater population in the tribe. And, um, so, you know, another huge benefit to what the co-op can offer for the, the tribe is we're able to create trades jobs for tribal members. We've been able to implement, an electrical apprenticeship program in, inside the in, inside the co-op, and we've also been able to do a similar program with our water and wastewater operators um, to develop tribal members to become operators within the co-op. Now, Pamela said it's it's not always about saving money, but I do want to ask: Are there cost benefits for for members there at the at the co-op in terms of what they would pay if they were getting their utilities elsewhere? Yeah, that's a, a really good question, and and yes. So one of our missions is to always provide um, a cheaper rate than what uh, an existing. So, for instance, in, in our service area, the the other utility company that we, it's a consumer-owned utility company, um, and we're we're always you know checking rates to make sure that our rates would be cheaper than what the consumer-owned utility company would be for our tribal members. And Brian, what are some of the challenges to a cooperative arrangement like this with the utility company? Is does it present some challenges at some points? For sure, um, I, I think one of our biggest challenges is um, the Cow Creek Tribe has kind of a checkerboard reservation, if you will, and so expanding our utility and, and 
and trying to keep it like a continuous utility has been a great challenge because a lot of our service areas, we don't have that continuous land that we can just expand on. So um, expansion and just trying to pick up, you know, additional service territory has been a huge challenge for us. And we heard Pamela talking about the, the handbook, the guide that uh, assists tribal communities with creating community cooperatives. What other resources are available to, to foster community cooperatives, such as utility cooperatives like you have, uh, ag, food and ag cooperatives, all these different ways that cooperatives are being used in, in Indian country? Um, for us, we, you know, we, we get a lot of resource help from BIA, um, and, and agencies like that. Um, Bonneville, um, was a huge inspiration to us actually forming our cooperative back in 2001 because they had a set aside program, um, in the Pacific Northwest where they set a, set aside 50 megawatts of power, um, solely for Indian, um, utilities and, and, to my knowledge, I think only three Pacific Northwest tribes have taken advantage of that set-aside program. So we're able to buy Tier 1 power from Bonneville, um, which is a guaranteed rate um, that we can buy it for, which is a lot cheaper than what the uh, consumer-owned utility companies were providing power to us at. So the BIA was involved in the startup, it sounds like. Are there other, are there federal incentives for forming a tribal co-op such as this? Um, not, not to my knowledge, no, but I do know that, um, currently we're looking at, um, putting a, uh, renewable portfolio, portfolio into our utility right now. And there's lots of resources right now with grants and renewables right now. So, um, there are a lot of agencies out there, um, from the BIA to the Department of Energy that are kind of incentivizing the, uh, renewable programs. And are you finding ways to collaborate and share best practices with other tribes? Um, yeah. So um, there are a, a number of different organizations that um, have that collaboration that we can get together, talk about our utilities, talk about what different utilities are, are doing. And um, it, it's been pretty helpful to kind of see what other utilities and our tribes are doing with energy development. And it's definitely helpful to kind of bounce ideas off of other, you know, tribes and just kind of see the direction that they're going. Um, because there are challenges when you're developing a, a, a co-op or an energy development from the ground up that, um, that, that you probably wouldn't face in a, you know, a consumer owned utility company. And I'm thinking about, you know, up there in Oregon and, are you subject to to state codes with regard to your co-op or do you, do you I, I think Pamela mentioned that Navajo Nation is the only tribe that has a, a actual code that addresses co-ops uh how are you regulated yes yeah, so um we are subject to state code here um in fact Last week, um, the state of Oregon required all the co-ops to submit their fire mitigation plans, and, and yes, UIUC was subject to that as well. So, um, but really, we are you know formed and regulated under the tribal legal code, but um, we do adhere to the, the state codes for utilities. And how long has the has the co-op been up and running? So, uh, since two thousand one was was our inception. 
Okay, so almost 20 years. That's great. And you mentioned uh, only three other tribes have accessed incentives from the BIA. Are there any trends one way or the other for utility co-ops in the future? I know there's a lot of interest. We we get a lot of um, calls and requests for information on our utilities. So I, I, I think there's, you know, I think we've shown that there's a true advantage to having the electric co-op or, or even on the, on the water and wastewater side. And um, I know there's a trend. I, I know that um, maybe outside the Pacific Northwest, there's there's a lot of tribes that are tapping into that utility power. So um, I think most definitely. We're speaking now with Brian Boswell. He's up in Canyonville, Oregon. He's the general manager of the Umpqua Indian Utility Cooperative. And he's explaining how this cooperative is set up. It has tribal ownership, the Cow Creek tribe, and, and tribal members are the customers. And it's a little bit different than, than some of these more traditional co-ops that we've been talking about today. But it's definitely a very, very interesting business model. And it sounds like there is some interest from other tribes that are looking to do something similar with a, a utility co-op, an electrical co-op, a gas co-op, lots of different ways to, to structure a co-op, lots of different businesses that can be modeled as co-ops. If you got a question, 1-800-996-2848. If you are a fan of co-ops, if you shop at co-ops, let us know, 1-800-996-2848. We'll be right back. Support for this program provided by the American Indian Higher Education Consortium, the collective spirit and unifying voice of 37 tribal colleges and universities. For over 45 years, AHEC has worked to ensure that tribal sovereignty is recognized and respected and that tribal colleges and universities are included in this nation's higher education system. Information on a tribal college or university near you at AIHEC.org. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm your host, Sean Spruce. We're focusing on business today, not just any business, cooperatives, often called co-ops. For those who run and operate one, it's a good way to share the workload and the risk and bring Native community values into a business model. How do your Native ways of doing business and trade compare with today's business models? Join us by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-996-2848. Let's go back to Pamela Standing. She's with the Minnesota Indian Business Alliance. And Pamela, there is a, a co-op up in Umatilla, up, where, up near Brian's part of the country there in Oregon. It's called Res Chicks. And they raise chickens, they sell eggs, and they do youth outreach in the process. Are co-ops a good way to teach business ag skills to Native youth? Yes, and they actually started uh, res chicks for their children and for their children to understand where food came from. So the children are a big part in raising the chickens, um, gathering the eggs, being a part of the whole process. It's really exciting. Yeah, I'm definitely going to try and check that out next time I'm up in the Pacific Northwest. Res chicks. Um We've got a caller on the line, Sarah, listening on KUNM in Albuquerque. Sarah, thanks for calling the show today. Yeah, this is a great show. Thank you, Pamela and Brian. Um, my question is about the financial benefit for people 
who make a cooperative, I mean, is it true that there's, they have more control over pricing and get to keep the money within their community versus a, like a corporate model where there's shareholders and money has to go back to them or back to Wall Street? Is, is there more of a financial benefit for people to make a cooperative together? Let's ask Pamela, financial benefits of, of running a co-op. What are your thoughts? I believe that it's that money stays in the community and the community decides how that money is going to be spent, but they're also going to decide on how the profits are used and how they're redistributed. So it really, there are benefits that way, um, you know, for them to make that decision up front and that it keeps things local. And that's what we need to grow and diversify our economies, especially within our, you know, our traditional tribal boundaries. If we can do that, then we're creating more jobs. The more times a dollar turns over in a community, you're creating jobs. Brian, would you like to chime in as well? What are your thoughts on financial benefits of running a co-op as opposed to a straight for-profit model? So I'm, I'm going to agree 100% with Pamela. Uh, that, that is our model. We, um, 100% of our, our revenue goes back into the tribe and our utility and and like i said earlier our utility creates jobs for tribal members and um so you, you take the cost savings off uh, you know 25 million dollars since since we started back in in 2001 and then our revenue on top of that goes right back into the tribe so um i i think it's a great model mm -hmm. pamela i want to ask you Owning a business, any business, a nonprofit, a for-profit, it's challenging. It's tough, and failure rates are high. Most business, most new businesses, sadly, they, they don't make it. They fail. So uh, with regard to some of these native co-ops that you work with, what is the success rate? Are, are you seeing um, any trends with regards to these co-ops being more or less successful than other types of businesses in the communities that, that, that they're present in? I feel that cooperatives have a longer life cycle, way longer than a corporation, for instance. And, you know, when you look at what happened during the housing bubble in, you know, in 2008, 2006 through 2008, a lot of the cooperative um, home ownership programs, they survived that housing bubble. Um, they were not damaged as bad as people that, you know, had a traditional mortgage. So there, there's something to be said for that. And the other thing, too, though, that I see and what we've been learning um, with, with some of these cooperatives is the time that they spend in the upfront planning. I feel that's really important. And one of the things that we've been trying to do to raise attention is how do we get these resources into our communities so that groups are making really informed decisions and they have the professional supports and technical assistance that they need to build their programs so that it becomes sustainable. And what other types of resources do you think are needed to, to assist uh, these native co-ops, both as startups and once they're up and running? Um, one of the things that I feel really strongly about, especially in our tribal communities, because our tribally held land it doesn't have a weighted value with a with a traditional lender. Where a lot of these cooperatives that are formed off, you know, they're they're formed in municipalities and other communities. They have home ownership. They have other things that that they can um, they can leverage 
if they're putting money together to start the co-op. So one of the things that I see with Native co-ops, and there's some interesting models, uh, there's a group in New York called Soul Fire Farm. They spent about 15 years working on their bylaws, but they've developed a really strong cooperative model that has a nonprofit that is a member of their co-op. And so that allows them to bring in funding for special programs and things like that. I feel like with our communities, we, there needs to be seed money that's set aside, even with the, you know, through our tribe, but also through nonprofits that understand that we don't have access to the same type of uh, capital um, on reservation as people do off reservation. And so it's like, how do we help um, kind of keep that momentum going, you know, in the beginning stages to get it funded? Pamela, earlier I asked you about the culture of co-ops, and I'm, I'm interested to know, are there certain types of people or even businesses that, that don't do well as co-ops? Um, boy, I don't know how to answer that question because, again, I think it comes back. A, a group has to decide. There's a process that they go through. When they're, when they're starting the cooperative, there's a process that they go through where they, they kind of look at what their big dream and vision is. And so they kind of do a pre-feasibility. Then they can go, okay, our big vision, it's too big right now, so we have to scale it back. But we can, we can when we get into our business planning, we can grow it. Again, it comes back to having the right types of technical resources available. And a group can come to a, a place where they go, this isn't going to be doable for us. And that's okay, too. That isn't seen as a failure. It's seen as, okay, this, this isn't the best route for us to go. So I, I don't know if there's a thing saying that certain groups are predisposed and others aren't. I, I, I wouldn't even know how to draw that kind of conclusion. But there are sometimes people's visions may be too big for the resources that they have. Like starting a food co-op, it's really expensive, and you need to have a high-traffic area. But there's a really good model up in Canada with Arctic Cooperatives. They have 32 food cooperatives through uh, 32 tribal communities up there. But it's a small co-op. It's not a big, you know, like a a big food co-op that you would expect to see, like what you see in the Twin Cities, like Seward Co-op or Mississippi, um, where it's a very high traffic. uh, You know, there's a lot of people that come through. So there's things you have to go through, you know, to make sure that you get dot your I's and cross your T's and have all all your ducks in a row and make sure that your plan is going to be feasible and you're going to be able to execute it. Pamela, I'm thinking about somebody listening on the show right now. Maybe they've thought about starting a co-op. Maybe they're interested in joining a co-op. And on the individual level, is is there a, a financial investment that, that members have to make in most co-ops to, to, to become a member initially? Is, is there some cost there? Yes, there is. But it, again, it goes back to the community and how they're designing their cooperative. So some co-ops use what they call a time bank, and it's the amount of time that you put into the co-op, you reap benefits from that. So like the, the, uh, among the corn stocks in Oneida, they don't pay anyone, but everyone's paid in corn, but they keep a time bank. So everybody that works out in the fields, 
they're given so much dried corn at the end of the season based on how how they work. Some co-ops do a combination of a time bank. They do in-kind. Uh, you know, they put a value on, on what your service is worth to the co-op. And others have a very small entrance fee. Um, you know, like the co-op that I belong to, Steward Co-op, it's $75, and that's a lifetime membership to belong to the food co-op. So it varies with each community um, how they structure their, uh, their model. But there usually is a small stipend that's paid, or if it's not cash, it's through, you know, a gifting economy. Well, now you've got me thinking, Pamela, about the membership clubs. I'm talking about Costco, Sam's Club, places like that. And you you pay a membership fee, an annual fee to go shopping there. Uh, how is that different from the type of nonprofit co-ops that you're talking about? Mm, that's, I don't know, I, I'm quite sure. Because the co-ops that I'm talking about are for-profit co-ops. Um, I, I need to make that distinction that they're not nonprofit or profit co-op. Um, and, and it's very different because they are working specifically. The goal is eventually to make some sort of a profit and the group determines that. And, you know, and they're set up when they do their bylaws, their business planning and their recruitment for members, you know, they, all of that's built in initially. Um, I don't know. The thing is with, like, uh, Sam's Club or Costco, they're buying in such huge, massive orders that they can get really seriously discounted prices on items that even in a small community, you'd never be able to compete with that. Um, It just Mm. isn't possible because you don't have the population to support it. So you have to scale your co-op to meet the needs of your community and the number of members and the people that are going to be supporting your co-op too, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And it really makes me think about what is the optimal size for a co-op. And I want to ask Brian, because, you know, like, I think a lot of people don't realize this, but like uh, the outdoor store, REI, that's a national scale co-op. And then you have like some of these big insurance companies that are set up as mutuals. And, you know, like State Farm is one of those. I mean, these are big, large, large businesses. So, Brian, is there is there like a sweet spot, an optimal size for how big a, a co-op should be? Wow, that's a that's a really tough question. I, you know, I, I think from our point of view, the size of our co-op was kind of dictated by, again, our, our, our checkerboard boundary lines that we had. Um, but yeah, um, I actually don't know how to answer that question. For, for us, it, it was as much as we could serve, um, you know, safely. But um, but we were kind of bound by by our reservation, so. Okay, sure. Pamela, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, a critical mass of members, is that is that a prerequisite for a successful co-op? I don't believe it is always. Um, I, I think it's the quality of people that you bring uh, to the cooperative. And again, like what Brian was talking about, if, you, if you're doing it, on, you know, within tribal jurisdiction, then you have boundaries and you have populations, too. And you have to, you, you know, you have to either scale up or scale down so that the cooperative can stay, um, you know, can stay open and is serving the community, but also serving its members. 
Now, what about limitations? I'm thinking about somebody that that joins a co-op and they become a member. And uh, what are some things that they really need to understand up front about the the business venture that they're they're investing in? Right, they're becoming an owner. They're they're taking a this is a business decision that they're making. And uh, are there any um, you know kinds of red tape or just little things they need to pay attention to going into the co-op so that they make a good informed decision? Oh, there's a couple of phases when you're opening the co-op. And so a lot of times there can be the capitalization stage where people can invest money that they will get reimbursed, you know, eventually after a few years. And then there's your membership. Um, I feel like when you, when, you make, when you make that commitment to become a member, you're, you're investing your money, however much it is, into the success of that, of that organization, and um, and and for its growth, that you're gonna you're gonna be there to um, make purchases there, to support the growth of the organization. I think the other thing is is to take an active role in the board, and be sure and attend the annual meetings. Um, vote for the new board members because the board members are recruited from within membership, and you you can become a board member. So those are things that you have a say in as a member. You can also, you know, at an annual meeting, you can talk about, okay, let's say there were profits to be redistributed. You have a say in how those profits are redistributed as a member. So be active in your cooperative, whatever role that you play. Got it. And Pamela, we are going to have to wrap up here in just a minute, but where can our listeners go to learn more about the Minnesota Indian Business Alliance and all the great work you're doing with community cooperatives? Um, we're at www.manibamniba.org. And Brian, where can folks learn more about the Umpqua Indian Utility Cooperative? Um, so we have a link under our Cow Creek Tribe uh, website, so just www. Well, it's been a great conversation. Brian and Pamela, thank you both for coming on the show today. Very enlightening conversation on community cooperatives open for business in Native America. I've really enjoyed talking with you both and learning so much more about community cooperatives, both in Native communities and beyond. Join us again tomorrow here on Native America Calling for a preview of new Native exhibits at museums this summer. I'm your host, Sean Spruce. Thanks for listening. Support by the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Indian, presenting Ancestors Know Who We Are, a new online exhibition that features works by six contemporary black indigenous women artists. Joelle Joyner, Paige Pettibon, Moira Pernambuco, Monica Rickert-Bolter, Stormy Weber, and Rodslin Brown, addressing race, gender, multiracial identity, and intergenerational knowledge. More at AmericanIndian.si.edu. Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. 
Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davis. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.